Welcome to Storytelling with Lindsay Bednar. Welcome, Megan. Hello. How are you? I am fantastic. How are you? I'm doing great. You are killing it in all things uh, being an author. And so I'm so excited to have you on today and talk about your process, uh, how things are going for you. You are an author of two books now with another in the works. Yep. I actually, I had a amazing weekend of writing this, yes, this past weekend. Awesome. It was awesome. I got 10,000 words done. So Holy cow. Very productive. Yes. I got nothing else done, but I did that. <laughs> well, that's a good, that's a good productive weekend. I'm excited to hear more about that. Um, okay. I want to start with so many people get nudges to write a book. And I would say most often than not a children's book. I want you to talk about what was your nudge for writing your first book, No Place for a Lizard. Okay. So my son, um, I have one child and when he was in kindergarten, he came home from school and he, someone must've told him about a bearded dragon, somebody, I don't know who it was, whoever they were, they're dead to me forever. <laughs> And he was like, mom, I really want a bearded dragon. But I was working. He, we had a puppy, a brand new puppy at the time. And he was still like, please, can I have a bearded dragon? And, you know, at like any good mom who's an avid reader herself, I would just read to him every night. So instead of making, you know, just grabbing uh, good night, good night construction site again, I would just make up stories for him sometimes. So I made up a bedtime story about a bearded dragon named Anthony. I thought it would be good enough. And then, of course, it wasn't. This continued for years. And then COVID happened, and I made him take classes about a bearded dragon, how to care for it, husbandry, all the things that you needed to know about a stupid bearded dragon. I shouldn't say stupid. People love them very much. <laughs> and to pause real quick, Anthony, which uh, you named the bearded dragon, is the name of your son. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's a bearded dragon named after him. It's his favorite animal. It should be good enough. Not good enough. And mm -hmm. then my husband was the one that actually nudged me and said, you know, you should, you should send this to somebody. You should, this should be a book. This needs to be more than the bedtime story it was. And I actually had printed it at one point with just clip art images. It was, it was really bad, but uh, that was the nudge I needed. And my husband has been nudging me to write for years, years and years. Uh, I, I think it was about 10 years ago. He gave me, I, I'm looking over here because I have it, this journal. It's beautiful. It was a birthday gift. And there's a note inside that says, this is for all your stories. I want you to write a book one day. I, I want you to do this. So he has been the one that has really shoved me over the cliff to give it a whirl. That's so cool. I never knew he got you that journal. He did. Yeah. And yeah. it, it sat on my shelf completely blank for years, years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As they do. Okay. So you, he was encouraging you to write the book. Uh, what happened next? What start of, what, what sort of processes did you look into with publishing? This is one of the things that I talked to with incoming potential authors all the time because you you start to google like how do i publish a book there's now more options than ever as to various paths to go about it so 
how did you come across me? How did we get connected? And why did you choose this path and working together? Well, the first thing you did is I just assumed I needed an agent. I thought like I need to. So first I looked at the big publishing houses and every single one of them says, you can't send anything in without an agent. So I'm like, okay, I need an agent. I sent out, I don't know, a couple hundred emails, inquiries, and either I didn't hear back or just got an auto response saying, we're not taking any stories about animals right now, or we're not interested in children's stories. We're dead. And then I would get several that said, we don't talk to anyone who's not published yet. So you, you can't go to the big houses until you have an agent, but you can't have an agent until you're published. So then I started looking at small firms and I found. I, and I want you to just pause for a second so that everybody really uh, soaks that in because it yes. is this, this like loop that you get into mm -hmm. when you, because I, I attempted to do the same thing when I was starting out before I started Rodney K Press is I was like, okay, I'm going to go after the big publishing houses. And they would say, you need an agent. And so then I would contact literary agents. And so much of what they said is that particular story is not what we are running with right now. Mm -hmm. It's not what we're trying to attract. So it, it's so frustrating when you know you have a good idea for the book and you just keep getting these perpetual stops in the process. And then, you know, the whole, well, this is the only path I know how to go but I can't do that until mm -hmm. I do this, but you can't do this until you take that path that you already know. So how do you, how do you even start? So then I just started Googling. Right. Uh, I think I Googled boutique publishing houses, small publishing houses, independent pub publishing houses. And I just started sending emails and I originally immediately got the emails from the vanity press places, which mm. If you don't know what a vanity press is, it is, I really want my book. I want my name on a book. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care if it sells. And I will pay a lot of money to have that done for me. And those people, mm -hmm. they will email you. They will call you four, five, six times a day. They they want you to go with them. And then um, I had found your website. I loved the fact that you were a woman. I mean, I know that that's not exactly. You are. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, everyone I had talked to so far was this very gruff man. I actually had a man call me from one of the vanity presses and I told him I wasn't interested and he, he used profanity and then hung up on me, but then proceeded to email me constantly, wow. you know, four or five times a day. I'm getting an email from him. Have you considered my offer? Have you considered my offer? It's not an offer. You want me to pay you. It was like 18 or $19,000 to bring a book to print. And then when I found your website, I was like, she just, you look like a normal human being and you're a small business owner <laughs> and you're a woman, like, I'm going to give this a whirl. And then you, you actually got back to me. And there were, there were three total small presses that got back to me that weren't vanity presses. Any vanity press you email, they are going to get back to you because they don't care what you're writing. Um, mm -hmm. And then you and I met and I felt like we had a connection. I believe we were talking about how your sister and I both had similar paths that we noped out of our career fields for something different. And you were a teacher. We, I just felt like we connected. And then you helped yeah. take it over from there, even though I was terrified every step of the way that I was a garbage pail writer. <laughs> 
Well, not the case at all. You had me both on your story, but also, you know, I, I tell people this all the time that those initial conversations I have with incoming authors are just as much about feeling the author out themselves as it is a story because we work together so closely for six months and, you know, being able to be my own boss and work with choose the people with whom I work. I'm going to choose people that I enjoy connecting with. And yeah, you were funny. You were warm. Um, your intention behind your story was like, just everything was right up my alley. And so it was a easy yes from the beginning and definitely not a garbage pail writer. You, uh, have the knack for writing. So that was the other piece that I was like, yes, all in. Well, you haven't read the new one yet. Don't say anything yet. The new one's much longer. It could be a dumpster fire. You don't know yet. It might be. Uh, I can't wait for that one. Uh, and okay. So another thing I wanted to you to speak to is the writing process, because I think a lot of people are like, okay, well, I have this idea and I sit down to write and then the ideas don't come to me or I'll get writer's block or I'll write a little bit and I'll put it away and it's difficult to come back to. So what did that process look like in putting together your draft to submit to me? No place for a lizard was, was easy because I already had the story and I've been telling it and I've already had it completely typed out. I can't even remember how it all came together to be what it is. Um, Bruno's best birthday, which is the follow-up, it was um, No Place for a Lizard had just come out. And my nephew, Donovan, he said, Nina, can I be in the next book? And I'm like, absolutely, buddy, you can be in the next book. And it was his birthday. And that just gave me the idea that, okay, he's he's going to be Donovan, a monkey, because he's he's a climber. That's what he is. And it's going to be about a birthday. And that process for me I write everything out longhand first because I'm old and I can't just stare at a screen of white paper and make something come alive. I still print out every draft, every illustration that gets sent to us. I have printed out the, I, I have dozens and dozens of copies that are not done, but I can't, I can't do it on a screen. So I, I finally mm -hmm. cracked open the notebook that Tony bought me years ago and I wrote it out from beginning to end. And it doesn't make any sense at all. If you look at my notes, I actually look like I need to be committed because it's, it's circular <laughs> writing. It's on the margins. It's everywhere. And then I stop and I continue living my life. I'm a mom. My kid's in sports. We, I have a job still. I have responsibilities. And then for me, when I lay down at night, then the light bulb goes off. There have been many, many times mm. that we lay down in bed and I will get up and my husband's like, you just you thought of something, didn't you? And then I'm in pajamas typing until 1.30 in the morning or whatever it is. Now I keep a notebook next to the bed. So when these things happen, I can write them down and actually sleep like a human being. Um, the, the book. Yeah. And well, I was going to say, I think one of the reasons why so many writers get uh, those ideas at bedtime is it's one of the only times throughout the day that we are actually quieting our brains. And we are, especially when we're parents, we're on the go, we're working professionals, we are carpool duty, you know, we're chauffeurs, we're going from place to place. And when our head hits the pillow, we start to kind of unwind. And that is when creativity is 
oftentimes, you know, we're able to tap into it. And so um, I hear that more often than not, that people are most actively writing in wee hours of the night, wee hours of the morning, um, just before they go to bed or just before they wake up. And I am, I am not a night owl by any stretch of the imagination. I'm also not really an early bird, kind of a confused pigeon. So for me to be up at two in the morning in front of a computer, it's, it's got to be, I have to be inspired right then and there. Otherwise, I am in bed because I like sleep and I, I thoroughly enjoy sleeping all through the night and the morning if I can. Same. I know it's an idea that has to be expressed if it's keeping me up um, at night or if it's, it's something that pops me out of bed in the morning because I'm the same way. Love my sleep. So one of the things I was actually talking to my cousin who's a teacher and she was starting a new position and she was talking about how it's keeping her up at night. And I told her that this was the first job I've ever had in my whole life that kept me up at night. I have had a lot of weird jobs. I've had careers. I've had really intense experiences and none of them ever kept me up at night. I, I worked in the legal field and if we had a trial coming up, I would sleep like a baby. And I, I now think that I was never an attorney. I'm not pretending to be, I was just on a team. Let's, Make sure everyone out there knows I was never an attorney. Please don't call me for legal advice. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I think it's kind of excitement too. I think your brain is excited about something. And when you have passion, that's when it starts to keep you up at night because none of those other things I ever did ever woke me up at night, ever. It's such an important message because uh, I think another question so many potential authors have is, is this idea worth sharing? And if it is something that excites you and keeps coming back to you, to me, that is a, a sign that not only do you need to follow it for your own passion's sake, but that it's likely going to resonate with other people because that is, you know, uh, the universe, that is whatever you want to call it coming together to say like, hey, by the way, this, remember this, we're going to mm -hmm. keep sending you ideas until you do something with it. I, I absolutely agree. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, selecting names of characters, we had um, Anthony, your son, Donovan's mm -hmm. the um, character in um, Bruno's best birthday. Did you have a specific process in selecting other names for characters as well? So my, the two books I have out right now, the characters were really easy. I have my son, I have my niece, and I have all three of my nephews. And when we started working on the second book, I told you, I'm, I'm not changing the names. The names are here to stay. These, my kids are going to be in it. I mean, I, they're my whole world. They're, they're part of this. But uh, Bruno is the polar bear. And Bruno, in my head, sounded like, uh, not Clint Eastwood, the other old Western guy. It was, mm. come on, did your dad ever watch those cheesy Westerns? Oh, I'm sure he did. Uh, I mean, Clint Eastwood is the one name that comes to mind. So uh, I'm going to. So in my head, he was a mix of Blue from the Jungle Book and this guy that was in all these old Western movies that my my dad would watch when I was a kid. And for some reason, the name Bruno just came to me and stuck and he seemed like a Bruno. And then Encanto showed up and I thought I had to change it mm -hmm. because Bruno was their whole movie. There's a song about, I actually start school visits with the younger readers and I tell them we're going to talk about Bruno and I have them sing the song to get it out of their system. 
Because otherwise, the minute I say Bruno, they scream and they start singing it. <laughs> because it was such a massive hit. Mm -hmm. I didn't even make that connection until you just said that. Because Bruno, to me, it does. I mean, that's that's his name. It epitomizes his character, I think, so well. I don't know what it is about it, but he's he's all Bruno. I don't know. He's a giant, softy polar bear named Bruno. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you talk to any kindergarten through third grader, they know who Bruno is. And it's is not my polar bear at all. <laughs> until you visit them. Yes. Until I visit them. So what was the illustration process like for you in getting what kind of vision did you have in your head? And how did you feel like that was translated in um, in our work with Shimoko? Shimoko was amazing. Get, like he is Amazing. phenomenal. He is phenomenal to work with. He communicates so well. I actually just had an issue the other day and I sent him a message. He had me back the fix within hours, hours. He had it back wow. to me. Um, and this is in very different time zones as well, which is difficult to work with. Yes. It's, it's six and a half. It's like six, seven yeah. hours between the two of us. He's, he's fantastic. I, pictured when we first sent out to all the illustrators to ask if they would be, you know, send us a sample. What was your work? I, I pictured nineties Disney. That's, that's what I grew up on. Um, I don't know if you remember the Lion King movie, but the lion's noses look squishy. And that was something I wanted for Bruno. So when he first sent me a polar bear, I was like, that is, mm -mm, that looks like a scary polar bear. And I was able to express to him that, no, I want him to look softer. And he just, it's almost as if he can read what, read my mind as what I'm, mm. what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And he's, I can't imagine working with anyone else. He's phenomenal. He's amazing. And I, I've worked with a lot of illustrators and I would say more often than not, creatives just have this way of tapping into an author's vision that is remarkable to me. And, you know, being able to choose a uh, wording that just kind of encapsulates what you have in your head to try to get it out on paper, because mm -hmm. we can be really talented writers, but as far as translating that into illustration, like I can't, I can barely draw stick figures. Um, so to, to be able to communicate that in a way and then for them to just get it and for it to click is always a surreal experience. And it's so cool to see um, an author's reaction when their vision starts to come to life in that process. And yeah, he, he knocked it out of the park. Yeah. He's, he's phenomenal to work with. And, you know, we, you and I, we would go through the storyboard and we'd put little inserts, like we were looking for this and this here. And he would ask me for some feedback on that, like, okay, what exactly do you mean here? And I would tell him, and English is also not his native language, and he still just got it. It was amazing. I I feel like if I had a different illustrator, the process probably would have been much more difficult than mm -hmm. he made it out to be. For sure. And that can happen too. Uh, part of the illustration onboarding process and really vetting the right illustrator is you can have somebody who's extremely talented, but their timeliness, their professionalism, their response to feedback and tweaks just might not be there. And then that can make the process very frustrating, um, which is unfortunate because it can rob 
the author of such a, a wonderful, you know, experience. And so it's really important in those beginning processes to figure out how responsive the illustrator is going to be. And yeah, I, he, he's so responsive in, in every way. I think it's also important for the author to trust their illustrator. Because mm -hmm. when it came to the cover for both books, I had no clue what I wanted. And I just let him run with it. And what he came back with was beautiful. And it is not at all what I would have done. If I had to sit there and choose, this is what I want on these covers, they would look completely different. And, you know, we, we went back and forth with like color choices and stuff. And he was completely open to all of that. But just giving him enough leash to let his own creativity go, that I think it's really important that you trust who you're working with. You can't yeah. micromanage an illustrator. It's huge. Developing that right connection from the beginning is huge. And then um, giving them that creative freedom, because like you said, sometimes they'll come back with something far better than we would have ever imagined. And so you know, <clears throat> when we're, for instance, working with a storyboard, we might have ideas on particular pages of the illustration direction, what exactly we want it to look like. But then there might be other pages that are a little more open, like, I'm not sure what I'm seeing here. And let's, you know, see what you come up with. And then I'm always surprised by how they have an idea better than mm -hmm. I could have considered. And with No Place for a Lizard, a lot of it is just bearded dragon, polar bear, and dialogue. There's nothing else happening. And he was able to take that dialogue and turn it into expressive illustrations, mm -hmm. even though there's nothing happening. They're just talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's it's one of the things that I stress with authors, too, is it's the the biggest trap so many authors can fall into is where they're telling and not doing a lot of showing. Um, super important for novels, but also for children's books, obviously, because with illustrations, there's so much that you can uh, show through the illustrations that you don't have to explicitly write out in the text, just through expressions and, um, yeah, the way that they create environments. And so, uh, yeah, he did such a phenomenal job at that. And and I I didn't think it was possible, but I think the second book is even better than the first. He did. He knocked it out of the park with that one yeah. because there's so many different animals and it's very colorful. He, he did a phenomenal job. He did. And I think there's always that like fear or pressure that an author feels with their second book to surpass the first book. Um, what I found most often is that because there's so much you learn in the process that the second book, a lot of times is that even next step up because you are, um, you're just, yeah, you're learning so much in the process. Um, you have this rapport with an illustrator. You typically choose, you know, moving forward if you're doing a series, for instance, with same characters. Um, and so it's a really cool thing to see when that just kind of builds and it's not like a, a one and done. Um, you can just keep, keep the series growing. Which uh, One and Done was actually one of the criticisms that No Place for a Lizard got from the Benjamin Franklin, which is the award committee. Um, that was one of the critiques was that they didn't think another story could ever come out of this. 
they thought it was a one and done for me. Interesting. Yes. Oh, well, they were very wrong. They were very wrong. Bruno <laughs> is back and it's his birthday. <laughs> yes. Speaking of awards, um, you are the winner of several awards. Uh, would love for you to share those. It's been a wild year and a half for sure. Uh, no Place for a Lizard came out October 22nd, 2022. And it was awarded the Mom's Gold Choice Award for Family Friendly Media. And then in April, uh, we found I found out that it tied for 10th for the Benjamin Franklin Awards, which there are thousands of applicants. And although it didn't medal, it I still thought that was amazing. And they send you a critique of all the things you can improve. Uh, and then the Golden Wizard Award, uh, which is mainly UK based. And then um, I just found out, I think it was September 1st that uh, it won the bronze medal from the Reader's Choice Awards. So I go to Miami next month for the award ceremony. So amazing. Which my son, you know, being a little sarcastic butt that he is, was like, well, it's third. You didn't really win. And I was like, what? I didn't really win. (laughs) What are you talking about? If you take third at the Olympics, you still won, man. Nothing like humble. Yeah, you didn't really win. Uh, And then uh, Bureau's Best Birthday just came out in August and it's received the Reader's Favorite Five Star Seal and is in the running for the Reader's Favorite Awards for 2024. And then um, it also, the, uh, I forgot what it's called, the Wizard Award. Amazing. Amazing. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, and it's a testament to to your work. I want you to talk about too, with how much success that your books have had, what have you, what have you found to be, um, most effective, successful way for circulation and getting your book out there? You have, this has to be a full-time job for you. It has to be. Otherwise, if no one is talking about your book, then no one is buying your book. If no one sees you, they have no clue about your book. It is on Amazon. It's on all the major retailers, but 99% of my sales come from in-person events, school visits, vendor events. I volunteer at a local farm and I manage their story time on Wednesdays. And I've done my own books twice this year. And then they can sign with me and they allow me to sell my books at these events, libraries, Anywhere and everywhere you can get yourself and your book in front of your audience, that's that's what you need to do. And as a children's author, you think, I thought at least, starting off, my target audience was young parents. Parents with young children. It's not at all. Not even close. Parents of young children are broke. They have no money. And they say, <laughs> we have enough books at home. My target audience is grandparents. Because grandma and grandpa mm-hmm. never say no to a book. So I've started going to craft fairs, vendor fairs. The grandparents, they love it. Because they also know it's a Christmas gift or a birthday gift or a whatever gift that they can give that they know for certain their grandchild doesn't already have. Mm-hmm. It's so true. And uh, one of our biggest uh, salespeople on our I, our little family team of my books and my daughter book has been um, my mother-in-law. 
she uh, peddles her books all the time to her, her age group. And you're right. It's, it's people who have grandchildren who are the most apt to buy books. Um, so many parents go through uh, book fairs at school or they, yes, they feel like they have a lot at home. They inherited some from their the, the siblings get passed down. So those, those newer purchases, I mean, grandma and grandpa are great. Grandma and grandpa. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you need to also, to oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you need to know where to find your audience. And I know TikTok right now is this huge social media phenom. It has been for years. I'm on TikTok. I'm terrible at TikTok, but I do it anyway. Uh, grandparents aren't on TikTok. Grandparents aren't on Instagram. Grandparents are on Facebook. Grandparents love Facebook. Mm -hmm. And so if you are an author and you're like, eh, I don't want to make a Facebook page, I'm just going to do TikTok. You are missing that entire generation. That entire generation of people with disposable income for their grandchildren, you're, you're losing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's with all of the um, push to do so many things on these newer platforms, uh, you really have to analyze exactly where your target demographic hangs out in Facebook. No question. Uh, I tell all my authors who are doing Kickstarter, same thing. You want to be really rolling this out on Facebook because that is where you are going to get the most traction. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. And you talked a bit about doing school visits. So I want you to speak a little bit more to that because <clears throat> I think there are a lot of different ways to do it. I want to hear what you've learned, what you found to be um, effective, surprising, funny, enjoyable uh, about your school visit experience. Uh, let me just say school visits are, are my favorite part of my job. They are my favorite part of my job, hands down. Writing the story is the easy part. Standing in front of a hundred kids at a time is terrifying, <laughs> but, and they are brutally honest. You know, they, I mean, if your story is terrible, they will tell you mm -hmm. and they have no qualms about telling you like, Oh, I didn't like that at all. That was awful. I, before I started doing any school visits, I talked to teachers and administrators. I'm not a teacher. I substitute teach, but that's totally different than being in a classroom year in and year out. And I asked them what they would want from a school visit. And they teachers wanted it to be easy for them. They didn't want to have to read the stories in advance and do all the work in advance. They wanted it to be, they can bring their kids, their kids learn something, they enjoy it, and we move on. So that has been my goal. And I worked with administrators and teachers to develop extension activities for my books, which are on Teachers Paid Teachers, and they're always going to be free. Teachers have enough to handle. They're paying for enough out of pocket. I'm not charging them for an extension activity that mm -hmm. I just created. And extension activities are word finds. They're STEM uh, projects. They are uh, literacy, retelling the story, worksheets that they can do during morning quiet time. They're anything that the teacher can use to fill the gap between, okay, we just finished math and we're supposed to go see this author in 10 minutes. What can I do in 10 minutes? So that's mm -hmm. what I have up there for them. I want kids to have fun and I want them maybe to learn something too. So my school visits are actually really long. I know some authors do 20 minute school visits. 
Mine are normally 45 minutes to 55 minutes. It is an assembly. It is, if I'm in an individual classroom, I talk to the teacher in advance. If it's second grade, we're going to talk about adaptations because Anthony and Bruno are totally different animals. They should never be in the same habitat. So let's do it during your adaptations um, unit. So I always reach out to the teachers first and find out what they're working on. If it's an assembly, I try and have them broken up by grade level. Kindergarten, they don't have the attention span for an hour-long assembly. So it's story. And my son and I actually wrote a song together about omnivores, carnivores, and herbivores. So I teach it to them. And uh, I send it home with them. They get a pit, like a printout of it to go home. So they can annoy their parents to no end with their new Jingle Bells themed song about omnivores. And I have visuals. I have cardboard cutouts. Uh, I actually have a polar bear paw print I bring with me. Uh, what else do we have? I have a polar bear tooth. I have a bearded dragon tooth. Yeah. So I always bring kids up and I have two kids hold a rope to show how, how big a polar bear can actually be. And then uh, second grade, third grade, we do story mapping. We do creative writing. We talk about adjectives. We talk about uh, painting a picture with your words. And I've done school visits all the way up to eighth grade. And eighth grade is completely different because, I mean, the, I still read them the story. Nobody else is reading to them anymore. So why not? They don't care. They're missing yeah. geometry or whatever. They, they're excited to be there. But then I yeah, talk. They'll enjoy it. They do. And for them, I talk more about how you helped me edit, how I, I will never forget you and I had never spoken other than, you know, emails and you read it and you told me that Bruno's voice was too close to Anthony's. You could tell he was, he was also from the Midwest. So somehow I had these two totally different animals and the way I wrote them was Chicago through and through. You could tell they both were, <laughs> were from there. And, and you gave me this crazy deadline. It was like, how about in 48 hours you find his voice? And like, that was it. Good luck, Meg. <laughs> Hope you can figure out how to do that. <laughs> so then I'm Googling how to find a character's voice. So I talk to them about that and I show them because I because I'm a weirdo and I have printouts of everything. I have my original paragraph and where you put like this voice doesn't match. So we talk about those things. Oh, cool. And to get a school on board, you have to meet them where they're at. If if I'm emailing a school in a wealthy suburb then yes, I request a fee. If it is a school that I know does not have the funds, you cannot expect them to pay you. Mm -hmm. So you find another way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's super important for people to know as well, because, um, you know, as an author, you want, obviously, as many kids as possible to have access to your books and, and what you're doing and, and for the older kids to learn about the writing process. And um, your time is valuable and it should be uh, compensated as such. And so what the goal is then for places who have it within their means to compensate you, um, you hope that you find some balance for the schools that you visit just out of your own generosity and, and really to spend time there. Um, yeah, I think the schools that I don't charge, I do request that they send home an order form in advance. Yep. And Every single time, those schools more than make up for the fee that I would have charged. Yep. Yeah, I 
there are several ways to go about these school visits. Um, some people do a, a, a field trip fee where you charge for people to come to an assembly. Um, some people don't believe that's equitable, and so they do the a free assembly, um, but it'll come out of the school's budget. And some people, like I said, will do the um, the order forms ahead of time. Uh, some authors might ask for a guarantee of a certain amount of sales, um, or just the agreement that they'll they'll do the order form. So there's a lot of different ways to approach school visits where it can be. Um, financially viable as well as uh, it can work out for the school um, so they're if they don't have it within their budget. Unless, of course, I have to travel to the school, then I, I discuss with them in advance. Like if I have to stay in a hotel, we, yeah. we have, there has to be a fee. Um, one thing I'm trying this year in particular is for every 10 books that students order from a particular classroom, the teacher gets a book of her choice. Cool. Or the school gets a book of, you know, for every 10, they get a free one. So I just did a school visit. It was a K-1 building. It was a big school, 600 kids in K-1 only. Wow. Um, and they ordered over 250 books for one day, which far exceeds what my fee would have been. That's amazing. I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to you now wondering how many books you've sold to date. And I don't even know if you have that, uh, that number, but some people are like, I don't know if it is, you know, if I should be expecting to sell 250 books or thousands of books or, or what it is. And, and whether you have that or not, I guess more what I want to hear from you is what does success look like to you as an author? When I first started, uh, you wanted me to place a bulk order of a thousand. And my husband was in the background saying, that's not enough. That's not enough. And I'm like, I'm going to have a thousand books in my garage until the day I die. Everyone's getting these for Christmas for the rest of their life. Because you read these articles online that say a typical author sells under a hundred copies. And that is terrifying. Um, I got my books October, 2022 by December. So 1,000 copies, I was out. And I called you frantically and I'm like, what do I do? I have no more books. So then we went to a print on demand and then I, and print on demand is, is a lot more expensive when you're ordering 200 at a time or 300 at a time. So then it was May that I placed another 1,000 book order. Um, so between Amazon the online retailers and the own and the copies I've had in my home, we're at about 4,500 in a year and a half. That's amazing. Bruno's best birthday came out in August and I'm at like 500 right now. It's not on Amazon or the retailers yet though. Yeah. That's amazing. And it's such a testament to you understanding that you can have a phenomenal book, but if you are doing nothing to move it, it's not going to move. And I think so many people have the misconception that, well, once it's published and it's out there, like if it's good, it's just going to move. Um, and there are definitely some, you know, organic traction that happens within Amazon, for example, and the algorithm and know, knowing how to place it appropriately. And you do get some organic reach. 
But um, even with traditional publishing companies, you know, I think a lot of people think you get to put your feet up, they'll, they're going to distribute it, they're going to circulate it, and then you're just kind of sitting back. There have been so many authors walking away from traditional publishing companies because they found they were still doing the circulating. Um, those big companies on average market for about 30 days. And then after that, it's on the author. And so when you see these big names in those publishing houses, they typically have an agent or a publicist or both that's helping them to move all of them. For the average person, it's on us authors. Mm-hmm. And um, the beauty of that is that's what the audience wants wants the audience wants to connect with the person behind this creative idea and it's so fun for people Um, i remember having author visits as a kid and how exciting that was and um it it not only does it sell the book more but it's it's so much more uh exciting for for the audience and the kids that it just it makes sense and as a kid, I never had an author visit. I do not remember an author ever coming to school. I I would have fangirled out. I was I was a huge reader. And to think that this is an opportunity kids now get, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And I have not branched out to virtual visits yet. Um, I just don't, I'm just not comfortable with that yet. But even to be able to just zoom into a classroom for 25 minutes and talk to kids, what an incredible opportunity. And yeah, I mean, I'm not Judy Bloom. It would be amazing. I, hey, Judy, if you're watching this, I'd love to meet you. <laughs> but like, they don't know that I'm not Stephen King. They don't know that I'm not amazing and, and the superstar. I, I'm an author. I'm a published author of two award-winning books. And I'm here to talk to your third grade class. It's it's really cool. And I wish it was something I had had when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Well, you're selling yourself short because <laughs> it is such a cool thing. And there's so much to op- offer audiences when you are an author of a children's book. I mean, what would you say is a learning curve in the first book process like a little bit a lot of it oh oh my gosh no I've I've had to learn everything everything my whole world has changed I have attended more Mm. online classes courses everything you could possibly imagine to try and figure this all out I heard a term that I'm actually an authorpreneur which I love because I'm not Mm. just an author I didn't just write a story send it off and there it is I had to develop my own website. I had to learn how to do that. I I don't code. I don't know what I'm doing, but YouTube does. So you watch a lot of YouTube. If you are not learning, you are falling behind when it comes to this business. And you have to be prepared to just keep going. I've said it many times. Writing is the easy part. It's everything else that is hard. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, in my work with authors, there is so much to learn in just bringing that book forward. But then after our work is done, there is all of the learning towards marketing going for the long haul that you continue learning about. And um, part, I mean, part of the reason I don't do, do that is because I'm not taking royalties, I'm not tracking sales. But um, also, it, it's its own separate industry. Oh, it really is. It truly is. And um, so I think, you know, 
people wonder what is kind of next after that your book is done. Well, that's the first phase of the process Mm -hmm. that has started. And then the next phase starts. Um, You think about it kind of like you, you built a house. Okay. You built a house. You have a house. Now what? Well, you gotta, you gotta paint it. You have to make sure it's decorated. You gotta move in. You gotta tell everybody your new address. You gotta keep it clean. You know, you can't, you can't just let it sit there and be like, well, I built this beautiful house and now nature's going to take it back and it's going to be destroyed. You have to do something with it. And that's such a great analogy. This, this is 100% become my full-time job. And I'm so yeah. blessed to have a partner who is supportive of that and is a hundred percent on board with whatever you need, go for it. Yeah. And he has been encouraging you since before you even knew you were going to yeah. do this. This is, this is apparently my hidden talent, right? Yeah. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about finding your hidden talent? Because that's one of my favorite things. Uh, so when I was in fifth grade, now I have a brother and a sister and I'm right in the middle of just these super athletic, talented humans. And then there's me. It's like a dud sandwich. And in the (laughs) middle, fifth grade me was just, I was weird. I loved to read. I would spend hours at the public library. I was very imaginative. You know, I would, I would make up espionage backstories for people just walking down the street. And, and I would, I would tell them to people as if this was really happening. And they'd be like, what, what's happening? I'm like, no, none of this is real. No, just play along. Like, I was just weird. I was a weird kid. And they were so talented. I I figured that there had to be something I was good at. If they were talented, we're all in the same gene pool. I had to be too. So the first thing I decided to try, I, I, I it became like a mission. I was going to find my hidden talent. And the first thing I tried was band. Uh, the school offered band. Mr. Kellogg was the director. Uh, that man is a saint. I'm I hope he's still alive and well and one day finds out about this and just is like, oh, I knew it. I knew it. I wanted to play the violin and my mom said, no, that's that's an expensive instrument. That's not our jam. In the Midwest, we have something called the penny saver. Is that something you guys had? I Possibly. It's like Craigslist, but a newspaper that they threw at the end of your driveway every day. So there was garage sales. There was used cars, puppies, instruments. So my mom got on the penny saver, literally the newspaper at the end of the driveway because I'm old and found me a flute, a used flute for sale. And she brought it home. I was like, here, you want to join the band? You can play the flute. I didn't want to play the flute. I don't like the flute. I know nothing about the flute, but I'm in the band now. And I play the flute. Turns out uh, I didn't know how to read music. I didn't want to learn how to play music. I was, I had zero desire or talent to be there, but I faked being in band for a year, an entire school year. I faked it. I would move my fingers and, but all the sound came out of my mouth hole and never the flute hole concerts. (laughs) I would fake it and just look at the girl next to me and be like, Oh, she's doing this. Okay. I could never read the music. I had no clue what I was even supposed to be playing. I would just hum along. I was I was a professional flute hummer, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so then 
It was the end of the school year and Mr. Kellogg, the band director, he called me out at practice where I, I remember we were in the room and he was like, Megan, I need you to play in A, C, F, I don't know, something. I didn't know how to play that note. I still don't know how to play that note. I don't even know what that note looks like. So I just, ooh, he laughed thinking, okay, very funny. Play me the C. So then I do it again. And he's like, do you not know how? I'm like, no, no, I do not. Do you, can you play anything? No, no, I cannot. I can't do any of this. <laughs> and then uh, that started a journey, uh, a lifelong journey of trying new things and failing spectacularly. I tried the flute. I tried choir. I tried rollerblading. That was very big in the 90s. I knocked myself unconscious on a high-speed rail system, and some good Samaritan saved my life. Thank God. Um, I tried distance running. I'm not a runner. I hate every mo moment of it. Every mile I run is the worst mile of my life. I tried uh, tennis. I played tennis in college. I, uh, I was terrible. I should not have been on the tennis team. It's not my hidden talent. Uh, skiing, I, I fell off the ski lift. I, yep, absolutely okay. did. Um, cheerleading, I broke a girl's leg during the homecoming assembly on accident. <laughs> I did. I can't remember her, her last name for the life of me, but her first name was Stephanie. And she was very kind. And she was a flyer doing all the, you know, the cute stuff up there. And my one and only job was not to drop her. And I dropped her. And she broke her leg in front of the entire school. Yes. Uh huh. And then uh, that's when my husband. I wonder if she remembers your name. <laughs> oh, I'm sure she does. <laughs> like, it, it was not a good broken leg either. It was like she was in the hospital, broken leg. They didn't like medevac her, but it wasn't good either. There was an ambulance. There was there was things. It was, it was not good for her. I feel very bad. Stephanie, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know your name. You had blonde hair. Sorry, sorry, you sorry. were very cute. I broke you. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I then tried the violin as an adult. You know, I was married, didn't have kids yet, rented it, got an instructor, the whole thing. And he, I mean, I took lessons for like a year. I spent a lot of money on those lessons. And he was, he was having me read from the children's book because I was determined that there was like a Mozart stuck deep inside me. And if I could just <laughs> will it out, it would come out. And in the middle of a lesson, he was like, so I, you know, I, I don't mind taking your money, but we both know this isn't going anywhere. Right. Or, you know, something <laughs> horrible like that. And I was just like, Oh, okay. Thanks for, thanks for just destroying my dream there, buddy. Thank you. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. I like Simon Cowell on uh, American Idol, just really squashing those mm -hmm. dreams and the, Mm -hmm. I took a, a, a pottery class, like a ceramics class as a kid. And I thought I was amazing. Oh, Lindsay, I was amazing. I was so good. I was going to have a gallery and a show opening, the whole thing. And then I found out that the teacher was fixing everything after I left. And I was, I was giving these things as gifts to people. I made this little soccer ball with dangling legs for my little brother. I, I didn't make it. She did. But she... She didn't want me to go home with like garbage. So she would fix everything after I left. And I thought like an idiot. Oh, after they come out of the oven or whatever that is, they're amazing. I'm so good at this. No. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, so you tried a number of things. I tried a lot. I, I'm still trying mm. things, you know, even though I'm, I'm yeah. so my first book, the dedication is actually to my husband. Thank you for helping me find my hidden talent because that's why he gave me the notebook. That's why he's always urged me, you know, you should write a book. You should write a book. You should write a book. And I'm like, no, I don't know where commas go. I can't do that. No. <laughs> and I still don't really know where commas go. So sorry about that, Lindsay. Yes. Let that not be a deterrent. Um, yeah. You don't need to know what makes a preposition to be an author. You don't. No, you absolutely don't. You don't need to deconstruct in a sentence or mm. know the object of the preposition. You don't need it. I mean, it's important. Kids, stay in school, listen to your teachers, <laughs> learn what a preposition is. Everybody else, get yourself a Lindsay. She'll fix it. I am so glad you just continued to try doing uh, so many different things and that you leaned into your hidden talent. Um, and I think, you know, uh, that it's such a great motivator for people who are like, Oh, I just, I don't know what my thing is yet. Like I don't have a whatever. Everybody's got at least one unique gift. There's no question about it. And if you don't know what it is, you just haven't tried it yet. Totally. That was my thing every time. Maybe I'm an amazing Olympic skier and just no one ever took me skiing. Well, you turns out I'm not. Yeah. You think about, um, you know, what if Tiger Woods grew up in a home that didn't play golf? You know, there's, there's so many. You would never know. Right. You would never know. And there's, there's so much about our upbringing and what we're introduced to and what we're not introduced to. So if you don't try the things that interest you or just try things that, you know, whatever, um, you, you might never know what your talent might be. So whether it's writing or something completely different, I hope people are continuing to try to do different things. Keep trying things, keep failing. Eventually, yes. eventually you'll find something that either doesn't break you or break somebody else. Yeah. That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Stephanie, poor Stephanie. <laughs> poor Stephanie. She probably has some very inspiring story that came from it that we don't know about. She's sharing on some. Oh, I hope so. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. She's sharing some uh, awakening that came from that whole experience, you know. And I shared that story on my TikTok because I don't, I don't know what else to share in there. So I just talk. And people from high school were like, I don't even remember this. I'm like, how could you not remember? This was the most traumatic part of my high school and I wasn't broken. They don't remember it at all. And they're like, oh, I remember you were the mascot. And I was like, oh yeah, I was the mascot for a little while. After after cheerleading, after I noped out of that, then I was the mascot for a little bit. Oh, what was And I was mascot? okay. Uh, Timmy the Titan, he oh. was like a six and a half foot tall, giant foam head, but he had this mustache. And that's where I saw through was his mouth, but I kept losing the mustache. So it's this giant head, and then you just see my face. It was, it was terrifying. Not a great look for anyone. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I always thought being a mascot would have been super fun. You get to just hide. I actually thought about going to, like, Disney and being a character yeah. after that. I had so much fun with it. Because you can be as goofy as you want, and no one knows it's you. Unless your mustache falls off, then they all know it's you, and then you feel kind of self-conscious. But one of my good guy friends was actually Prince Charming at, at Disney for a while. Very good looking guy. He was the one who actually introduced my husband and me. So he's 
pretty important in our story. But yeah, it was Prince Charming at Disney. So you you were introduced by Prince Charming. Yeah, actually, I've never thought of it that way. Yes. But if you didn't marry Prince Charming, I think that means you were one of the evil stepsisters. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I don't know. Lindsay. Left over or something. <laughs> you weren't Cinderella. <laughs> I wasn't. Probably more like Gus. Gus Gus. <laughs> he was always my favorite. He was pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my eyes are officially watering for... Those who can't see me. See, this is one of the reasons why I love Megan. Typically, meetings turn into me laughing hysterically and um, a lot of self-deprecation and just joy. <laughs> if we're not having fun, why are we doing it? Yeah. Uh, why? Uh, and if, if you can't make fun of yourself, someone else is going to, and it's going to hurt. So. Oh, I learned that. Jump in there. Early on. Mm -hmm. It's better to beat them to the punch, right? Yeah, if if you make it funny, then it's not so so sad that I broke a girl during homecoming assembly. <laughs> you know, if I told you that story, like, oh yeah, there was this poor girl and I dropped her and I broke her and she was screaming in pain. That's awful. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. It was a terrible experience for her. And again, Stephanie, I'm really sorry. Yeah. Really, really sorry. <laughs> I will never stop being sorry for that. Uh and still giggle worthy. <clears throat> okay, so there's so much, you know, you spoke to what you learned uh, for sure after our process of working together and realizing, oh, there's still like this learning curve now about circulating, marketing my book. Um, <clears throat> for those listeners that are considering becoming an author, um, maybe they have a kid who wants to become an author or a spouse or whatever. What is your advice to people who are like just starting out? know what you want your goal to be. If it is a child and they desperately want to be an author and they have a short story, know where to go with that. Amazon KDP has an avenue for parents of children who want to be an author. And if you're not looking to, you know, make a million dollars, first of all, if you're looking to make a million dollars, you got to spend 2 million. So stop everybody. You're never making a million dollars. Nobody is. <laughs> but for authors, if you are not interested in circulating to a wide audience, look into the programs that are out there right now that offer a free uh, publication and you can order yourself author copies and you don't have to do everything in order to be published. If you want to impact your readers' lives and you want a broader reach, know what your budget is going in. Because even with a publisher, it's going to cost you money. You have to order your stock. You have to have a website. There's web hosting fees. If you're going to do an LLC, you have to know your taxes. So know how far you want to take this and then plan from there. Because the further you want to take it, the more work it's going to be. But if you literally just want your name on a book, Amazon KDP is there for you. If you want to actually explore being an author, be prepared for it to be so much more than just writing a story. It is marketing. It's web hosting. It's having an online store. It's maintaining stock. It's insuring your stock. It's cash flow. It is 
school visits, getting in front of people. If you want to be an author, but you're terrified to talk to people, that's that's severely going to hinder how much you can distribute this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as somebody who used to be terrified of public speaking, um, and I just had to lean into it over the years, uh, it's also something you can absolutely overcome. Um, And I would... Oh, I'm not saying my first school visit, I wasn't a total wreck at all. Oh, no, it was the most terrifying experience of my life. I mean, there were, there was 150 kids staring at me waiting for me to talk to them. And all I wanted to do was run back to the bathroom and either vomit or put more deodorant on. I didn't know what I needed to do. But the more you do it, the easier it becomes. But if you are if you have anxiety about a situation like that, that's something you need to look at before you move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you are going to need to and really want to connect with your audience because that is the way that uh, books become successful is, you know, I, I tell authors this too. You can have a huge box office premiere coming out, a big movie with all the big star names those big celebrities still have to go on the red carpet. They still have to do interviews. They still have to help to circulate the book and create, generate buzz, um, create conversations around the movie. Sorry. Um, Yeah. They're not going on Jimmy Kimmel because they want to, it's, it's a publicity tour. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that's what, when you continue to generate buzz about your book, that's what's going to, keep people discussing it. And it's something that you've done so well. Uh, you've really leaned into <clears throat> um, really great graphics in, in ways that you can make uh, things interesting, uh, appealing looking so that people don't just scroll past your content, that it's actually engaging. Well, thank you. Because yeah. uh, social media is definitely my biggest challenge. I put yeah. way more time into it than I would ever admit to anybody. There's a, there's a lot of time going on there. Yeah. It can absolutely be its own full-time job. So I get it. Oh, well, when I make that first million, that's the first thing that's going. Uh-huh. Somebody get me a teenager, dial a teenager. You take care of this from here on out, man. <laughs> I, I need some 17 year old girl or boy, whatever. I don't care what you are. You got to be 17 to like 20. Yes. And for younger listeners, um, I have previous students that listen. Uh, I know for at least for them, people who um, are good, you know, in that generation that are naturally good at social media, there are so many internships just like this or ways that you can develop uh, your resume while um, helping authors or uh, entrepreneurs or whoever it is grow their a media platform. So little plug for people to don't sleep on internships and, and, and opportunities where you can establish uh, some background and build a portfolio of what you're able to do. So it's super important. Oh, absolutely. And it is a skill that companies are looking for people to fulfill. Yeah, no question. Oh, well, I don't, I could sit in uh talk to you all afternoon. Um, I'm just looking at the clock. I don't want to take too much more of your time. Um, 
what is there anything else you want to leave with with listeners as for potential authors? Um, obviously, I want to direct them as to where they can learn more about you. Um, one thing I want to say is for children's book authors specifically, um, if you are looking for ways in which to uh, create content, connect with your audience, really follow Megan and look what she's doing um, and get inspired because you've really done a fantastic job at it. And I'm, it's, it's been awesome. Thank you. Yeah. It's been, it's been a really fun ride and I'm, I'm not ready to get off the train yet. So I'm just going to keep, keep learning, keep failing and hopefully keep making you laugh about what I'm failing at. (laughs) That's my goal. No, but truly for, for authors, for anyone inspired, like anyone that's looking at this and they're like, I want to do what she's doing. I joke about the money and I'm not, I'm only sort of joking because you can't go into this hoping to replace your full-time income with your first book. There are millions of books available on Amazon at people's fingertips. You have to go into this wanting more than just money. My goal was to have one child, just one, fall in love with the story and not realize they were learning while they were reading it. I have since had, I've received emails from little, um, from children's moms where it was a little girl who said, she has brown hair, just like me, I can do it too. And, and I I cried, I got the email and I just cried Mm -hmm. because I, I impacted that little girl. I, have had, I've been at a vendor event and a student from a school visit comes running down the aisle to me and gives me a huge hug. And I have no idea whose child I'm even touching at this point because I don't remember. But then I can always say, oh, did did I come to your school? I came to your school, didn't I? Because they're so excited and that is worth it to me. I, you can't go into this expecting to replace a full-time income. You really can't. And I've seen authors on Facebook on all the socials, you know, talking about how do I replace my full-time income with this? I'm sure you can, but not with a quality product. Your book has to be marketable. Anybody can put together junk these days, especially with AI images, mm-hmm. which if you're using AI, that's that's your cup of tea. That's not mine. Mm-hmm. But if you look at some of these stories, the market is being flooded with garbage and people are putting 20, 30, 40 books out a year and they're junk. Yep. And that's how they're just trying to make any type of money they can. If you want to do this, you need to do it right. And you need to do it for the right reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And I think now more than ever, people are really wanting impact, uh, more than anything, you know, what is my impact going to be? And if, if people don't have that in their nine to five, especially how can they get that, uh, in another way? And there's no question when you write a book, you will make an impact. Uh, it's going to resonate with people in ways that you don't even realize. Mm -hmm. It's, It is a phenomenal experience and everyone has a story to tell. Just if you're going to tell it, take the time to do it right. 
You don't have to spend a million dollars. You don't have to spend $5,000. There are tutorials. There are ways to do it for free. You can upload on Amazon for free, but take the time to make sure it's, it's a product that you would want a child or an adult or a teenager to read. Absolutely. Well, Megan, where can people find you uh, and follow what you're doing and continue learning from you? Um, my website and my, I wrote them down because I always forget. And my Instagram are both Megan D as in dog author. So Instagram, Megan D author. My website is Megan D author.com on TikTok, I'm Megan Deliberto. So I'm sure you can look in the show notes to see how to spell my last name. It's not super easy, but it's Megan Deliberto 03 on TikTok. Or, you know, just go to my website, Google me. You'll find all the different ways you can follow me. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And then uh, I even have my email address and stuff right on my website. Send me send me your questions. If, if they're not absolutely ridiculous and they're within my realm of uh, answerability, I will. I'll answer them. That's awesome. Some people ask some really crazy questions, and uh, I now preface conversations with people that these are com- these are questions I'm not going to answer. I'm not going to answer them. <laughs> well, that might be a whole other conversation for another day. <laughs> it might be, yes. <laughs> but uh, seriously, authors out there, if you have questions, just send me an email, and I'll get back to you when and if I can. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for taking the time. Thank you. Share with us today. Uh, I'm so excited for you. Um, it's been an awesome journey to watch. Uh, I can't wait to dig into what's next. I, I'm hoping to finish it and uh, have the courage to show it to you. Nice. We'll see what's, what's next. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks so much. We'll talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.